Welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly bulletin from Planet Pop Culture, wherever that is. I'm Sean Pattenden. On today's show, I talk to John Cooper Clark, the William Blake of Salford, about his first new book of poems in decades, The Luckiest Guy Alive, plus pies, new order and teaching Nico jokes. Also, sci-fi lullabies, space opera on a galactic scale in Apple TV's adaptation of Isaac Asimov's classic Foundation series, starring Jared Harris, have they filmed the unfilmable? And all the men in the world are dead, except for one, in Why the Last Man on Disney+. Plus. Is this the future liberals want? Plus, get down, Shep. We dig into a massive collection of remixes by Shep Pettibone, the cowbell-clanking king of the 80s dance floor, and we dive deeper into the crates with the lord of library music, Johnny Trunk, on the 25th anniversary of his very special label, Trunk Records. All that on today's Culture Bunker. Hello, Andrew Harrison. How are you? You've been away, I believe. I'm time rested and ready to uh, delve into the world of pop culture. Yeah, I'm all right. Good. It was lovely listening to the Culture Bunker on a beach. Was it? It's like, it was nice to be a listener. You were very good. You and Alex were very good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Before we get going, I believe you have a hot take on the new Bond movie, No Time to Die, which is finally out after many years, it mm. seems, and you saw last night. I'm going to stick my neck out. I think this is the best Bond movie. I was absolutely thrilled by it, absolutely transfixed. It's so good. I rewatched Spectre beforehand just okay. to prepare myself, and Spectre's a yeah. bit shonky. Mm. The plot makes no sense. Mm. People get themselves into trouble for no good reason. No Time to Die is so tight. It is totally watertight. It's all driven by character. It's an ensemble piece. It's not just about James Bond. It's about everybody in the oh, Bond first, the Bond universe. Things of import happen. Things of massive import happen and at the end I, I'm not going to lie to you Sean I was blubbing a little oh, really? it is amazing I want to ask you what about the lady question because ladies are now to the fore he's not the old ladies are now to the fore the ladies are brilliant there's a new female 007 mm-hmm. A lady of colour, Lashana Lynch, and she is fantastic. There's also another lady agent who we encounter mm-hmm. in one of the... In all Bond films, you go to a location, don't you? You go to an exotic location. I of won't course. tell you what they are, yeah. but in one of the exotic locations, Bond teams up with another female agent who is remarkable. And one of the great things about this um, this edition or this final outing for Daniel Craig is that... He's, he's not casting side eyes at the, the lady agents and the lady characters mm. who are saying, oh, well, you can't do Kung Fu, can you, Roger Moore Eyebrow? <laughs> yes. He, he's kind of uh, treating them as fellow agents on a par with himself. Finally. And it makes, be- it makes Bond a better, stronger character, not mm-hmm. a weaker one. I cannot tell you how much I loved it. I think it's fantastic. Wow. So I go. might actually go to see it. Usually I hate Bond. Well, you, I mean, you might even like yeah. this Bond. Yeah. Who knows? Now, shall we get to know our special guest? Yes, let's. In 1996, Johnny Trunk, an obsessive collector of film soundtracks, TV music, jazz, exotic music, adverts, general oddball recordings, realised that the music he really wanted was no longer <laughs> available. So he started licensing it and releasing it himself on his own label. Since then, Trunk Records has put out everything from unreleased soundtracks to The Wicker Man, The Clangers and Kez. It's put out T-shirts and merchandising, celebrating much-loved British imagery like the Vision On or the Rumbelows logo or the Woolworths record department bag, <laughs> all the things of our youth. Uh, and Johnny also scored the shortest ever top 40 hit with the ladies' bras, all 36 seconds of it. And if you've heard this tune, you'll know why it's an absolutely ineradicable earworm. In many respects, the boom in library music is down to Johnny. And on the 25th anniversary, which is this very day of his label, he's putting out Do What You Love, a compilation of 33 trunk discoveries. Welcome to the Culture Monkey, Johnny Trunk. Nice to be here. Thanks for great intro, in. by the way. Well, Thanks. you know, I, I like to see, think <laughs> I'm of myself. Great. Yeah, I like to think of myself as a James Brown type hype man. So we're going to talk about the album in a bit more detail later in the podcast. But firstly, where did this? You, it's quite an aesthetic of its own, is it? Where did this this particular fascination for this kind of stuff develop from? 
It's just what I like. That's all it is. Mm. It just comes from being a kid and not and watching the TV and going, I like the music that's coming out of the telly, but not necessarily the pop, top of the pops kind of telly. Yes. It was more, well, I like that funny film with that funny noise and I like that strange musical instrument I can hear on that TV show. That's really what it came from. It was more the driven by the telly to start with. You and I have a similar vintage. I can, I can remember thinking, why is pop music in the charts while great? Not great in the way that the theme from The Flashing Blade is great. For instance, well, you've got to fight for what you want. There you, there you go. That is it in a nutshell. That mm. is it. And I was, and I was all, all, my, all the mates at school were going, oh God, the new Genesis album is amazing. I was going, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not as good as the music from Children of the Stone. Exactly. What are you talking? I'm so not interested. I can't get excited about the jam. I can't get excited about it. I just can't do it. I have a strong suspicion that Pulp, uh, and Jarvis Cocker in particular, his preferences in music were driven by that kind of preference. Why can't it sound like a TV theme? Well, he put the KPM All-Stars on, didn't he, at Hmm. at his meltdown? Yeah. And actually, the Flashing Blade theme is on the album, isn't it? Of course it it is, yeah. Mm. Um, Do you feel like you're kind of curating a bit of a lost Britain here because it's not just the music it's not just you know the radiophonic eye dents on Radio Sheffield or you know the kind of uh, the music that you'd hear uh, you know on adverts but it's also the visuals like I say it's you know the same old Sainsbury's logos the Sainsbury's lard stuff do you feel like this is kind of the Britain that maybe doesn't get the attention it ought to pretty much so but but not not intentionally it just mm. sort of it's how I, it's sort of how I operate um, I thought my mind goes into these funny places where I go Oh, I haven't seen that for a while. And if I haven't seen it for a while and it's still in my head, I have to go and find out why I haven't seen it for a while. Yeah. And then I go and find it. And then once I've found it, I go, oh, it's, it's, it is as good as I thought it was. Um, library music. Many, many listeners will know this, but some won't. What, what, what made that stuff? You just mentioned the KPM All-Stars. You made library music for TV, for adverts and so forth. Yeah. What made that so potent? And what made, you know, because you were kind of, you know, concurrent with that suddenly becoming part of the yeah, engine no, I started of the it. yeah, pop. definitely started because I put the first uh, commercial library record out. So, mm. so for for your lovely listeners who don't actually know what library music is, it's non-commercial music written for low budget usage in film and television. Mm. So, a great example of library music is the Mastermind theme. That's on an album called Dramatic Backgrounds, and someone who made the Mastermind show would have gone instead of getting a composer, would have gone to the music library and said, "We need a very cost-effective piece of music to for this show. It's mm-hmm. quite a dramatic quiz show. Some would have pulled out the record that says Dramatic Backgrounds. We would have gone through the 14 tracks and, and gone, oh, I quite like Approaching Menace. That's quite interesting. Doom, doom, doom. We'll use that. Let's use that. And that is it's called Approaching Menace by Neil Richardson. Everyone thinks it's called the Mastermind theme, but it's not. It's a piece of library music which costs not a lot of money to use every week, which is why they use it. Wow. Off the shelf. It's like off the shelf... Music just made for broadcast. And yes, it has an intense potency. It does when it's played on Vision On or when it's played on a kid's TV show. Like the Grange Hill theme is a classic bit of library music, which is a brilliant bit of music. Is it Alan Hawkshaw? It's called Chicken Man. Not Sausage Man. Not Flying Sausage Man. No, not Flying Sausage Man. (laughs) But that's a classic bit of library music that, Mm. that that crossed over into the sort of... But it was just made, it was just a session where they were making a comedy, it's called Rock Comedy, the album it's on. It's just a bit of rock comedy. Rock comedy, that sounds like a genre in its own own right. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking more to Johnny, a man with his own dramatic backgrounds, who is also approaching Menace, a bit later in the show, (laughs) about the album Do What You Love. But before we move on, do remember, you can get The Culture Bunker and all of our bunker shows early and without adverts when you support us on Patreon. That's The Culture Bunker at the weekend, a weekly politics panel show on Tuesdays and shorter bunker dailies throughout the week. And you also get smart merchandise and extras too, like our star guests choosing their favourite records of all time. In a minute, Sean's going to be talking to John Cooper Clark. Mm. She did it while I was on holiday, the rotter. 
But first, let's have a track from Do What You Love, Trunk Records 25th Anniversary. Johnny, this is you with the tune Zeus. Tell us about this. Oh, well, I just wanted to prove to myself, because was, at the time this was going on, lots of people were sort of sampling and making records and and a lot of people were making pretty bad records and sort of getting away with it. And I thought, I reckon I could do that. So I bought myself <laughs> a computer and logic and sort of taught myself how to make a record, and that's all it is. Mm, let's have a listen. It's a great pleasure to introduce performance poet, recording artiste, friend of the Honey Monster and committed hater of flapjacks, John Cooper Clark, to the Culture Bunker. Hello, John. How are you doing? Hello, Shian. Fine. Wonderful to hear your voice. Welcome to our Culture Bunker, which is very difficult to say after a couple of lagers, <laughs> as you can imagine. I can imagine that. We're talking to you because your anthology of poetry, The Luckiest Guy Alive, is out now in paperback, but we also need to know some poet tips as well. Um, my first question being, how important is it to stay alive in the current climate? Oh, paramount. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, like the late uh, Ian Kilminster, a.k.a. Lemmy of Motorhead. <laughs> oh, yes. I I'd like to achieve immortality by the simple expedience of not dying. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how poetry helps, though. I have a feeling that poetry might be helping you stay alive. What for, for, for longevity? It's not. It's not a recipe for longevity. <laughs> I mean, look at the, uh, the the people like the John count. Keats and that. Yeah. they all died in the mid twenties, didn't they? I missed that boat. It's too late for me to leave a beautiful corpse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's a myth anyway. I we destroy those myths. My dad is a huge fan. I mean, an absolutely huge fan. He he will mention you without me having to mention you in conversation. Oh, he writes oh. poetry too. It's not at all like yours. Um, but here, so I thought, oh my God, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my dad to ask you a question. And it is about pies. My dad says, can you get a skinny, figure-conscious guy with a pie? Because I believe that this is this is the way to get people. But what about someone watching their weight? I don't think it's the most helpful meal available to the Weight Watcher, no. Mm -hmm. But that's really not a problem in my case. But we're talking here about uh, a balanced diet, within a balanced <laughs> diet. It's uh, I always like them outdoors. You know, football is the ideal situation for pies. In the football season, you know, you get a bit peckish at half-time. What better? Um, but what kind of pie? There is only one choice for the sane and the sentient. There is only one choice in an outdoor stand-up situation, particularly if you're wearing suede shoes, oh. is uh, meat and potato. Yeah, absolutely. Meat and potato pie. It's actually the, the Court of Human Rights were trying to force through a law that made it where you had to call it a potato and meat pie. Hardly any meat in it. The main ingredient is is potatoes and white pepper. But with the odd flake of mince. <laughs> and the whisper. So the, so the, court of, uh, the European Court of Human Rights were, were for years insisting that it was called a potato and meat pie. But uh, if you went to Manchester and asked for a potato and meat pie, this would single you out. As it says in the book, this would single you out as a visitor from another planet. It isn't a potato or a meat pie any more than it's uh, 
Garfunkel and Simon <laughs> or uh, yeah. Hardy and Laurel. Yes, McCartney and Lennon. Tonic and Gin. See where I'm going with this? It's a meat and potato. That is the law. And that's the best pie. Why? Because it's the perfect hand pie. Of course. It's not going to drip on your suede shoes. Well, it's like a pasty, isn't it? They have the same sort of function. They've got the same... That has the same quality, the pasty. Exactly. Tight contents. Um, Why do you write poetry? Have you ever tried a novel? Have you ever tried painting? Line of menswear, perhaps? Trousers? A line of menswear. I like it. Uh, that's the one that appeals most actually, <laughs> out of all those options you've just delineated there. I think the, mm. I, I think the menswear thing uh, appeals the most. Yeah. What were the others? Painting. Painting. If you don't doodle, messy, scrawl. Bit right? messy. Oh, but that's what's good about it. You get really messy. It's messy play. Experts. All right. Okay. Novel. Long form. Novel. I haven't got the time left, and uh, and I'd have to set it in the recent past <laughs> because I don't. <laughs> I don't have any technology of any kind. <laughs> I see. You know, I haven't got a, a computer, yeah, a credit card. <laughs> uh, <laughs> i got a car, but I'm not allowed to drive it. Oh. That, that's about it, technology-wise. The rest of it, I just don't fancy it. The reason I haven't got a computer, and I, I couldn't even, I wouldn't even know how to switch one on. I'm not even bullshitting on this. Mm. Right, but I wouldn't even know how to switch one on. If I did, because I know how great they are, if I had a laptop, you would find me in six weeks' time dead <laughs> under a pile of pizza boxes. <laughs> right. I'd never set foot out of the house again. I haven't got a computer because I know how good they are. And uh, and I haven't got a mobile phone because too many people want to talk to me. <laughs> it's a very first world um, It's Your radio programme about Wyndham Lewis and, and Vorticism which was on Radio oh, yeah. 4 a few years ago, was one of the best programmes I have ever heard about art because art programmes are notoriously difficult to do because they make art sound boring. And that's why I asked the painting question is because your passion for that kind of the reality of Wyndham Lewis, of really sort of breaking him out of whatever kind of ossified state he'd been in, was so pure and so wonderful. I wanted to say, are you ever going to do any more stuff about that? That programme was fantastic. Thank you Blimey, for putting Wyndham Lewis out there thanks. because I'm a big well, Wyndham Lewis fan. Well, that was Jack. I can't remember his surname. A young man called Jack something. I'll look it up on your Skype. I'm sure <laughs> it'll give you the, the name of his surname. But, uh, yeah, he was a re- really keen individual and mm. uh, it wasn't easy for him to get that footage because we were... We were on tour at the time, so he, he kept having to leap from one town to another. I apologise for that, for all of that, Jack. But it's good to know that it turned out well. Do you think that your poetry is an art? Is this what you plan to do, is sort of fuse those things and take it somewhere else? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's tweaked reality. It's not just a chunk of what happened, mm. you know, stuff that happens. In fact, very little of my stuff is written from personal experience, to be honest. Right. In the words of the late Bill Withers, he said, you know, the construction of a song involves a kind of magic that I don't want to get too involved oh. with. You know, he don't want, he don't want to examine things. Or as more recently, my friend Barry Cryer said to me, he said, <laughs> to quote himself... <laughs> he said, you know, analysing humour is like dissecting a frog. The frog dies and nobody laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> so I'm like that about poetry. Do you know mm. what I mean? I don't know what it does. I don't write it because it's therapeutic or because it uh, addresses any of society's evils or because it's going to make anybody a better person. To be honest... For many years now, since I determined to become a a professional poet, really, what I write it for is money. 
And, and in order to make money out of poetry, you have to address some kind of ill-defined public. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what I do there. You know, the people are sitting on my shoulder when I'm writing poetry, you know what I mean? And I'm kind of, you know what I mean? Because I sell tickets to my, to, to my shows and everything depends on uh, them being popular. Yeah, I was, <laughs> so I write, yeah. But I write a lot of stuff and uh, it's, it doesn't always make the cut. You're a hard taskmaster on yourself. Uh, well, you know, you've got to have some kind of quality control going <laughs> yeah. on. And that's where I think I, I, I hit the jackpot with pies. Yes, yes. I think we're safely there that pies pies is the current mood and you've, you've, <laughs> you've, you've encapsulated it. I wanted to ask about being produced by Martin Hannett, which you were for the five albums that you did. Did that make a difference to the performance that, that he's a musician's producer in that sense and a deeply rock and roll one? Oh, yeah, it was very music-centric. Mm. You know what I mean? I just had to fit in, which, of course, wasn't an ideal situation for me being a number one control freak. Mm-hmm. So to have sort of uh, musos saying what's going to be what was, a, <laughs> was a, a new experience for me. However, I think some great stuff came out as a result of that, stuff that I wouldn't have written mm. had there not been a musical track going spare. How did working-class Manchester of a certain post-war period produce so many avant-garde artists such as you and the people that you surrounded yourself with? Music's always been important in the town of Manchester for some reason, you know. You're talking to somebody who hasn't lived there for 32 years, by the way. Because you're an Essex boy now, aren't you? uh, So I'm not any kind of expert Mm. on Manchester, but uh, those blues package shows that Chris Barber started up in the mid-60s, for instance, Mm -hmm. that brought people like uh, Freddie King, B.B. King, Albert Mm -hmm. King, Howlin' Wolf, John Lee Hooker, Coco Taylor, people like that. Brought all those great blues singers over, to, and they always did. Did Manchester was uh, you know very receptive to those uh, those events. Also, I mean, I saw I saw Ray Charles and the entire Ray Charles Orchestra in 1962 when they when they were top of the charts with "I Can't Stop Loving You." So I saw all the main people. I saw, I saw them in Manchester. But when I started out, you know, the main thing was you know never mind all this parochial thing that we're on here. I've come from a time when to make it in any kind of flaky occupation like poetry or, you know, music, you've just got to go to London. That's all there is to it. The Beatles had to do it. New Order didn't. No, but, you know, things have got different. You know, communications have changed. The technical media of uh, of this, you know, nobody has to go anywhere, let's face it. I don't know why they're all going to Glasgow moaning about the planet. Can't they do it? <laughs> Can't they do it from they home? I <laughs> may have a point. What's the oddest place inspiration has ever struck you? The oddest place that's a mm. very that's a very good question because I don't rely on inspiration really. But you know, I don't know. Sometimes you know something jumps out a ready-made like this one, uh, the sudden departure of Jeffrey Archer. That came up on the Tea Time News in 1978 or something. And, 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 you know, something, sometimes the world turns poetic without any warning, and that's a good example of it. And that line is in one of my numbers. Yeah, with titles from the book like Your Metrosexual Ex, I'm presuming that was the headline. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that was a headline. All the best stuff comes from headlines. Yeah. Heartbreak Hotel, probably the greatest record ever made it was from a a tabloid headline what about i mean i'm presuming this isn't a headline get back on drugs you fat fuck 
Actually, I said that to myself. Okay. <laughs> I said that to myself in the first drying out clinic I ever went to. Ah, oh, right. And yeah. uh, they had this, uh, it was a, it, no, it was the last one, not the first one, it was the last, mm-hmm. I went to more than one <laughs> confession to make. But uh, the last one I was in would, had a real top dollar chef. Oh, and there right. was kind of there was ah. kind of you know fabulous food available there, you know so I was eating five meals a day and for the first time in my life I actually uh, put weight on so I looked in the mirror <laughs> and I got, so much I couldn't get out of my pajamas I couldn't wear any other clothes I couldn't wear any other clothes that I went in with on account of all this weight I'd gained so so before I could leave this clinic I had to give my manager uh, five hundred pounds luckily it was on the King's Road. So I had to give my manager £500 out of my own pocket. <laughs> I couldn't get into the clothes that I'd came in in. So I so I, I had to give my manager £500. And luckily, those generously cut suits had just come out. <laughs> this is why you need your own line of <laughs> so, menswear, I'm saying. I've been on the pies. I've been giving the pies a, a right bashing. So, I'm, so it's something I looked in the mirror and I said it to myself. Get back on drugs, you fat fuck. <laughs> oh, we're all glad you didn't. Um, <laughs> of your many fans, who is the least expected, in a way, if someone who's really surprised you has come up and said... I don't know why I'm always surprised, but uh, I've got a few. You know, Ali McCoist. OK. Psycho Pierce, Stuart Pierce. I don't care if he did coach Manchester City. Everybody loves the psycho. <laughs> you know, these people, I, I can't believe I'm on their radar. You know, I'm you know, I'm a fan like everybody else. Does. But the latest one, Van Morrison. Really? Oh, my God. Yeah, I spent Ooh. a day with him for a... I did a piece in GQ magazine. Yeah. Me and Van, in, during the, in the, in, right at the height of the lockdown. He's got some controversial views. He about certainly the has at the I moment, yeah. I don't necessarily share these views, but uh, I don't I don't really know what they are. We didn't talk about it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there we were, uh, just me and him in uh, Belgravia, idling the day away. It was uh, absolutely, what a, how fantastic, because, I, I, you know, I love that guy, I've got to say. If there's one thing I'm grateful to my first wife for, it's uh, introducing me to, it's playing that. I was already a fan from his days, you know, Here Comes the Night. But, uh, you know, when she played that Astral Weeks. Astral Weeks, one of my favourite records. Wow. Yes, absolutely. Want to ask, though, you've obviously heard the Working Man's Club track of a couple of years ago, John Cooper Clark. Oh, yeah, I love that track. John Cooper, what, John Cooper Clark, track six. That's it, yes. Yeah, 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 they're a great band. I I love everybody who loves me. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it should be. Um, Which band's after shows were the best in rock and roll? Uh, Oh, blimey, uh, Cripes. The Arctic Monkeys are great. Okay. After show, but uh, the Alabama Three. Yeah, they look like party guys. I'll leave it there. Maybe the, the <laughs> Alabamas. I think they're sort of more my age. How long is the longest you've ever stayed up for? The longest I've ever stayed up mm-hmm. for. What yeah. on the trot? Yeah. Probably a week. <gasps> How did you feel? I was that? a pill head when I was mm. a teenager. You know. Ooh, ouch! What's the secret to a long life? Bloody hell, uh, I, I, I really I, I have no idea. I, I've long outlived my expectation myself, so I do what I want. I think most of the time, I think that's my, what that's what I've done. I've done what I want, within reason, you know, I'm not a sociopath or anything, but, <laughs> you know, yeah. I do what I want. Really. So advice to an aspiring poet would be 
do what you want. If you're a poet, my serious, my serious, uh, if you're in censor, like following my footsteps mm-hmm. here on this, yeah. and many, yeah. many people have. It's a great, uh, you know, with great results. Uh, <laughs> uh, my thing is, get a manager. I've had managers that have been terrible, but it's better than not having any manager. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they they ask for things you would never ask for. Mm-hmm. You know, as a as a humble human being, you know, you know, you know, nobody wants to hear that that those words. You know, no, I'm not paying that much for him. It's not that good. Who wants to hear that about themselves? You know, you don't want to hear that. You'd be destroyed in no time at all. Yeah. No, you get a guy, some dispassionate guy for whom it's just business. Yeah, okay. That's and, very good advice. Uh, and they're on a percentage, though they can't make anything if they don't if they don't get you anything. So get representation if you're going into the poetry business. This is a question you won't like if you don't like talking about Nico, but she's one of my absolute heroes. I don't mind talking about oh, Nico. Oh, good. Did Nico ever tell any jokes? Well, she once asked, you know, she she was, you know, the Germans are not noted, noted apart from Henning Vane. Who's, who, who actually is very funny, but whose entire shtick is all about the Germans not having any sense of humour. He's made it a very funny piece of shtick. You know who I'm talking about. He's on all the panels. He's a very funny man. I'm sure there are many uh, German comedians that I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm, but, but Henning is the guy because mm. he's kind of playing with that idea that there aren't. <laughs> so with that in mind, you know, yeah. uh, she was asking us one night in Brixton, in the Brixton apartment, there were a few of us, mm-hmm. there, you know, teach me a, a couple of gags, you know, and you seemed to, because we, we used to tell each other jokes all, all the time, or, you, you know, and obviously my acts even included quite a lot of gags, still mm-hmm. does. She wasn't very good at the, uh, she didn't really engage with the audience very much mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So she thought if she knew one decent gag, it would kind of slightly break the uh, the ice, even though she was the ice queen. Let's say thaw it out a little bit. Not entirely break the ice, just, you know, thaw it out a little mm. bit. So, uh, so I, I think I told her, what was the one I told her? Oh, yeah, it, imagine the Titanic with a lisp. It's unthinkable. <laughs> It's very, very, very difficult to explain a guy like that. <laughs> How did she react? Did she, did she ever retell that? Incomprehension, incomprehension. I mean, you've got to admit that's why it takes a second. I mean, that's two, quite even niche. If, it is quite even if, helping. even if you know, English is your first language. <laughs> it takes a couple of seconds. Terrific gag, isn't it? Yeah, really <laughs> it's really gag. good. And the other one was, what's green and smells like yellow paint? Yeah. Green paint. <laughs> I said, hit him, hit him with the quick ones. That way you won't, you, you know, you're, you're not going to screw up and, you know. I love like the thought of her contemplating what track list, you know, what from the Marble Index will I be doing tonight and where can I put the green paint joke in? <laughs> Enter the Dragon, exit Johnny Clark. We'll have a little bit more from him later. But first... There's an arms race and a gold rush, both going on at the same time in streaming TV. 
an arms race to create the biggest, most epic, sprawling narratives to fill that Game of Thrones-shaped hole in our lives, and a gold rush to sign up every comic book property in the mm-hmm. universe on the off chance that one or two of them might turn out to be the next Marvel franchise. We're going to talk about the next two big bets in a moment, Apple TV Plus's adaptation of Isaac Asimov's Foundation, a 600-year saga of a future human empire in space based on books that were in the 60s as big as Lord of the Rings. And also... Why the last man? Why, as in the Y chromosome? An inexplicable global event kills every male creature on Earth, except Slacker Yorick and his pet monkey Ampersand, in Brian K. Vaughan and Pierre Guerra's comic series. Can Disney Plus's Star Network turn into compulsive TV? Here is what they both sound like. When I was a child at the edge of the galaxy... I heard stories about a man who could forecast the future. But the story remained dark to me until many years later. Until it became my story. Until it became the only story. You're familiar with my work, psychohistory? Every mathematician has read your theory. It's not a theory. It's the future of mankind expressed in numbers. And the Empire won't like the future I predict. I'm not turning around now. Power plants will start to shut down. Which which city? All of them. Somewhere is the answer to how this all happened and how we fix it. Who are you? Yorick. You're reproductively interesting. Wow. Okay. Uh... Let's start with Foundation, which I devoured as a teenager. The, the idea, the driving idea is that with enough data and a large enough number of people, you can predict politics, economics, clashes of governments, the very future itself with absolute accuracy. And Jared Harris, son of Richard Harris, plays Harry Seldon, the psycho-historian who develops this science, and he predicts that the human empire, which is a very thinly veiled version of Western civilization, is going to definitely fall. And we start to see the terrorist attacks and the totalitarianism that are going to break it apart. And Selden is, is exiled to the planet Terminus to build the foundation with his followers, which is a kind of Blue Peter time capsule <laughs> that's going to preserve human culture in the future. Johnny Trunk, were you an Asimov kid? No. No. Are, you, I like a, the look of the books. Yeah. You, look, you love the art. The art's right oh, up yeah. the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah. little yeah. bit of Philip Castle airbrushing. Yeah, on the yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Did you, what did you think of this as going in cold? Because I know this stuff quite well and it's brand new to you. If I had to be completely honest, mm. I watched it as instructed. Yes. <laughs> I thought, wow, there's some money being thrown at this. Oh, yes. It was remarkable. I mean, even the costumes are just outrageous. The, the money that's behind it is extraordinary. It's yeah. and it looks amazing. But I just I just found that I just found everyone a bit boring in it. I found I had no connection to it and no like the world's blowing up, I sort of didn't really care. Mm. And and I thought it was a bit Bit, almost a bit hammy in some respects. Well, the, th- the thing of the book is that it's, it's essentially it's based on decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Right. It's like we are the Roman Empire. Yeah. And this you is how we, yeah. you know, history will repeat mm. itself. I think yeah. that I think that is a, a trope in that in this kind of uh, you know epic episodic uh, science fiction. 
And that, when I read it as an impressionable, an impressionable teenager, yeah. really leapt off the page because it's a book of, you know, Asimov writes books of ideas. He can't write characters to save his life. His characters are almost terrible. Yeah. But the ideas are epic. They're grand. They are universe-shaping ideas. And this one is the notion that history can be, you know, anathematized. It can be analyzed. And weirdly, mm. now we live in the age of Cambridge Analytica yeah, and big data. It's actually... Yeah, this is this. this is he, happening. he was imagining it would happen in thousands of years mm. in the future when you had groups of tens of trillions of people. Now we discover you can do it with the humble population of Britain if you want mm. and get it get it down really tight. So that I found really interesting. Unfortunately, the amount of money and the dazzling mm. production well, values on screen yeah. distract you from that, and you end up thinking you're watching A.N. or the space opera. Sean, you're for the listeners, you are grimacing a little. What did you think? <laughs> well, the first one is an hour and a half. Mm. And it takes an hour for there to be an enormous incident and things to move on. I found it really leaden. I found mm. the dialogue was very clunky at points. You have mathematicians who don't seem to do any maths. They talk about what they're going to do and they talk about psycho They, they do telemaths, which is it, you wave your hand at a special effect and a load of graphics appear in front but of I've, you. But and... I've heard mathematicians on radio programmes. They actually talk about maths in the everyday world. They, and they look around, they live in the present and maths is everywhere. These people that just go, but I did some maths and I think the future is going to be like this. Or did you do maths? I'm really good at maths too. Yeah. And they call it math, obviously. Nah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the worst, that's the most terrifying <laughs> thing about the future. <laughs> Math. <laughs> no, no, I, this future must be stopped. I, it's maths. Yes. We all know this. Yes, mm. I found it really difficult. And again, I think at the end of my notes, I'd put, but I don't really care. And I think that was a problem. There wasn't a character who yeah, could pull exactly. me through. And I think the character of Gal, who is the wonderful yes. maths prodigy, she is young, she is meant to be carrying her, she's the one that we're meant to identify with left me cold it just didn't well, leap the out of thing the is that they have actually tried to engineer more human interest into this from the very very arid and let's let be honest with you yes, quite quite boisey yeah, yeah so so gail the mathematician yeah. and her boyfriend rachel roger forget it you know um this is kind of a, a new development um that the, the, the tv showrunners have put yeah. in as i'm famously uninterested in love and romance unless it's with robots you don't need I'm, I'm love with him and on romance that. in this. Yes. You're not crying out And the three emperors are another kind of... I was going to ask you, well, what did you think about them? Because that's where I just felt, oh, ouch, the clones, aren't they? Well, the human empire of the yeah. future is ruled by three clones. Yes. Right? The empire is not just ruled by a series of dictators. It's ruled by the same dictator. But I found that just took it so far. But what you see in the original books is basically politics in space. Yes. And as a sucker for space, yeah, and a yeah, sucker yeah, for yeah. politics, I'm absolutely, this is catnip to me. But the version that we're presented within yes. TV is punted too far into the realm of the uh, soap opera fantastical. I'm not sure that Asimov himself would dig it too much. I've got a question. Did anyone else feel resentful that Apple and all the money I've given them in my life just was in all this money on this show but that's when the, the world is thing. burning? I just felt a bit like, oh, God. Well, yeah, but that, that's the arms race of television, is it? Yeah. Every, every, you know, it's people don't really say anymore the effects were incredible because all the effects <laughs> are always incredible. And in fact, I've, you know, perhaps Johnny and I can collaborate on this. I would like there to be uh, a return to lo-fi science fiction. Where the Make it out of plasticine. Yeah, but the sets really are made of cardboard. Yeah. But the yeah, actors yeah, are yeah. all rather. Stop motion. Yeah. Stop motion. Super 8. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, as you know, I'm on, my lo- I'm on my long trudge through the entire corpus of Doctor Who. And I'm in the oh, early 70s at the moment. It's amazing. They're oh, it's so scary. But, it's, but everything wobbles. It's brilliant. Yes, but but there's total belief from everybody. Yeah, it's amazing. On, yeah. It's amazing. Also, I, I know there's not supposed to be any humour in it, but it'd be nice if there was some kind of tiny Something bit of humour. Something humanising. But I think that this is one of those incidents where uh, we're faced with a horrible 
possibility that in the future nobody has a sense of humour. Would you watch more of it? I'm trudging it a bit. The second one gets quite hard work. What, what did you think about Why the Last Man, which is very much in our world, and it is quite a John Wyndham idea. All the men die. Or all the men, all the people with Y chromosome die. Amazing idea, terrible lead. Mm. I thought that the bloke who plays Yorick couldn't act. Are you saying a last poor Yorick? <laughs> we did know him, and he is not good. Mm. Um, I felt he was the one that let it down. I actually thought he should die as well. Can all the women take over <laughs> the world and just not have him? Why even be interested in the last white man in New York? So they, uh, I found it fairly insulting, actually. But, the, so, but isn't that the point, though? The idea that the, the sole surviving male, we think, dot, dot, dot. No, of course. The sole surviving yeah. male isn't a capable person, isn't a hero, isn't, isn't special. Alpha. He's a bit of a dick. He's a failure, yeah. He's useless. And that's that, that <laughs> is that's the idea. What if the what if the last surviving what if the hope of the human race was that loser? Mm, isn't that me. an interesting premise? Also it took a whole hour for anything to happen in that one as they set everything up. She's like, oh come on. I love Diane Lane. I really I wanted to see her She's in fantastic. more of it. She's wonderful in this. What did you think of Olivia Thelby as hero, Yorick's sister, alcoholic uh, EMT worker? Yeah, really good. She's really good. Yeah, I thought, yeah, supporting cast, but I thought he let it down. Every time it was on, it was like a bad TV movie mm. and not bad enough. Again, I felt I'm watching this and I'm, you know, all these Armageddon-style films. You know, sometimes it's, you know, on your BBC News website. Do we really want to be... <laughs> On it as well. well, I mean, science fiction is never about the future, it's about the present. And there's a reason why, you know, in the 1950s, it was aliens coming to get us because it was the Russians and the communists. Mm. And there's a reason why in the 1970s, the future is all about ecological collapse because that was when we were becoming conscious of that. I mean, Johnny, what did you make of this? Is it, it's a, it, like I say, it's a, quite a John Wyndham premise. I really liked it. Oh, okay. I thought it was really well made. I like the way it developed. It reminded me of things like um, House of Cards in a funny sort of way. Yeah. The way it was, I thought the I thought the budget was well spent. I thought it looked great. Um, I like the way it sort of unfolded with me because I had no idea what, what I was watching. Mm. I just turned it on. Mm. And I really found it very enjoyable. So much so I've told about six people. I said, you should, you should watch wow. Why, The Last Man. I really liked it. I didn't mm. actually take much notice of him being crap because everybody else in it is so good. Right, like all the women yeah. are great. I think, yeah, yeah. but I really like the. I wasn't expecting it to be to to be all the men dying, and so it was to me coming to it cold. I really liked mm-hmm. the way it unfolded slowly, and then I was going, "Oh my god, how's this happening? Why is that dying?" And yeah. I really liked it. It is actually interesting when you think that in terms of like maybe he's not a he's not a star, he's not a character. Maybe he's the MacGuffin. Yeah, maybe he's the lost ark. Mm. Maybe he's the thing that maybe he's the object that's been stolen. Maybe he's the thing that needs to be found. Because he has, he lacks an awful lot of agency. He's a bit of a yeah. pillock. Well, don't forget, yeah. he's been, he's been, he's kind of looked after by his his wealthy parents, isn't he? They yes. pay, basically pay his way. Yes, his his his, his mother is a high ranking yeah. uh, member of government who ends up president because the seventeen guys yeah. in front of him dies, <laughs> which is a well worn premise, isn't it? Like, yeah. oh my, they clean as the president because everybody else is dead. Oh, but I liked, I genuinely liked it. I would watch. I would, right. uh, unlike the first one, I wouldn't watch episode two, but this one, I'd probably give episode two a go. The comic is really great, and maybe. And have you read it? Yeah, it, it's, mm. it's fantastic. It's yeah. really good, and it's beautifully drawn in an exceedingly simple way. Pia Guerra, it's like a very European mm. style. Mm. They, they call it Lean Claire, where it's like literally ah, just lines, okay. yeah. no shading. Hergé's Tintin, for instance, mm. rather than, and not cartoony, yeah. realistic, yeah. but in that school. And you can kind of project your own performance onto Yorick. So the Yorick that I read. It's quite a persuasive character. Yeah. He's not. He's, he's still a useless dick, but he's a three-dimensional useless dick, whereas this guy kind of underperforms it, and yet surrounded by great female performances. Mm. The other interesting thing, and kind of connected to that, is that it's one of those science fiction things that shows that 
after a disaster, after the apocalypse, the yeah. first thing that resurges is politics. The first thing people are looking for is food, and the second thing is power. Yeah. So you see, what we see here is a group of Republican women in the replacement White House because the original White House burnt to the ground. Mm. The first, the, the husbands are all dead, and the first thing they're saying is, "Well, who's going to represent our values?" Very quickly becomes a political struggle, mm. very mm. much like Battlestar Galactica did. For well, instance. I only got th- to one episode, so maybe I need to go to more mm. and watch more to see it unfold. But it, it was the guy that really did. Stick yeah. McCraw. There's been a bit of a row as well about the uh, gender politics of it in the sense that what we see is everybody with a Y chromosome dies. Mm. So that includes trans women. Yeah. Trans men survive because they don't have a Y, tran- uh, don't have a y chromosome. That's not in the comic, mm-hmm. which was written in 2002, yeah, 2003. Yeah. And this, it's been accused of gender essentialism. Yeah, it, would, the idea, it would be if that's the case. Yeah, the idea that your gene is your destiny and you yeah. will always be male no matter what. Should we just not go there? I don't know. I, I think it's interesting to think about. <laughs> This kind of, yeah, it's touchy. It's touchy. It's a touchy subject. It's a touchy listeners, subject. you get in touch. Hmm. And well, I guess, I guess time will tell, listeners. <laughs> I, I was kind of conflicted about it because, you know, in a, you know, I am team comics, as you know, and yeah, I want yeah. it, I want it, want people to like these yeah. things because I think this is the engine room of amazing ideas. Mm. And I think Brian K. Vaughan is one of my favourite writers. He writes Saga, which is just incredible, incredible. Oh, you love that, don't you? I love yeah, it. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure this has fully done it justice. I think it's a good stab. Mm. But... Yeah, it's kind of it is a mixed bag, isn't it? It is. Okay. Um, shall we have a bit more John Cooper Clark? Yes, we shall. As regular listeners know, we like to ask our guests for their favourite tunes. We're unable to include them in the main podcasting because the man and licensing reasons. <laughs> but you can get them on our rolling Culture Bunker playlist, which is excellent and getting bigger and bigger. Just see the link at the top of the show notes in your app. Here's me back with my pal Johnny Clark. Who's on your stereo? Who do I listen to more than yeah. anybody else? Yeah. I tell you, Sinatra. Really? In Which the house. Yeah, yeah. Period. I've just got. In fact, I've just bought in vinyl. I've just bought in the wee small. <gasps> One of the best. With, with the with the original cover art. With the original cover, beautiful picture of Frank. Glorious, absolutely glorious. Can I ask you now? This is some stuff. If you can think of, it would be great. Of your current record. Oh, my current record is yeah. It's um. It's The Fontaines, A Hero's Death. It's a terrific record. I recently uh, had a con- was in conversation with Green Chatton. I can't remember the programme, but uh, he was uh, a great geezer and loved his band. In fact, my daughter's going to see them at the Corn Exchange, uh, Cambridge, uh, in the not-too-distant. It's got a beautiful line that's uh, not something you often hear in the world of punk rock, this line. Tell your mother you love her. <laughs> it's just one of the one of the great lines in this uh, beautiful song, Wonderful. "A Hero's Death." The Fontaines, DC. And what's your favourite record of all time? My fit now. This cut. This would change any day. Yeah. Depends on That's the day, obviously. Enough. In fact, when I did Desert Island Disc, I was racking my brains as I have done for the last probably sixty-five years. What are my favourite record? Eight favourite records. That's impossible, but I had to do it right. And my man Johnny Green, he said to me, "Quit." sweating it he says whatever list you put down here you're going to change it mm-hmm. on the morning of the broadcast and that's exactly yeah. what happened you know because music's like that isn't of it of course you know, it well, is yeah yeah well not normally having said that normally i would give you if i only had one record to choose it would have to be something by elvis right mm-hmm. it would have to be something by elvis but uh on this occasion in the light of the uh, recent death of don everly kathy's mm-hmm. clown Okay. Which is probably the uh, the second record second record that I bought, Kathy's Clown by the Everly Brothers. 
Remember, you can hear those tracks in full on our ever-evolving Culture Bunker playlist. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Johnny Trunk's ear for a long-lost sound is world-renowned. He started Trunk Records in the mid-90s to make rare and hard-to-find music accessible. Even music that existed but had never actually been issued, which is a bit of a (laughs) a thing to be able to do. Let's have another tune from the 25th birthday compilation, Do What You Love. This, remarkably, is an advert for a new international combine harvester by the Mike Sound Singers. Getting a new hive, a new high-performance, 454, 574. Power-packed and versatile, height of comfort, height of style. Johnny, you started Trunk Records, as we have said, I think, three times now in the 90s. Why was no one else doing this, and why you? I've got got absolutely no idea. (laughs) Um, I I really don't know. I think someone would have come come along and done it eventually. I just think it's, I think people, I was part of a generation of record collectors who were all kind of hanging around record shops at that time and and digging about on the floor a lot, Mm. because a lot of record buying at that time was different from it is how it is now and tastes were very different but there was a load of us who that sort of my age who were going well, I don't really want to listen to that there's other stuff I want to listen to but I can't really find it and it was normally on the floor in the rubbish pile mm. or, and then I, I just think having gone through all that I realised that all the other stuff that I wanted to hear or I really wanted to hear you couldn't get so but I think things like The Wicker Man I think people would have eventually come to that I just happened to be got there first that's all and I, because I knew it was a good thing mm-hmm. um but I was definitely a Kickstarter for a lot of other people yeah, to do yeah. it. You discovered Basil Kirchin, is that right? Actually, well, discovered. Well, I didn't discover him. I just found him. Yeah. Because he was sort no of one lost. Knew who he was. Well, <laughs> everyone, well, he was. Well, they sort of did in the early seventies, mm. and people like Thurston Moore was a big fan of right. his sort of avant-garde, freakish jazz tape manipulation stuff. Um, but he'd retired from music in about nineteen seventy-three. and just disappeared, um, mm. and I, so I spent a few months trying to find him, and I found him in Hull, and. Um, he just said, wow, I've been waiting for someone to come and find me. Did you look me. up K in the phone book? I wish it was that easy. Oh, well, <laughs> I so wish it was that easy. I had to get get to him through writing two letters to the Musician Union with a letter in a letter right. saying, please post this letter on to Basil Kirchner. And sometimes they do if they've got a forwarding address and they happen to have one. Mm. And so I sent off this letter and a month later I get a parcel from Basil saying, hello, I'm here. And and I've been waiting for someone to come along and wow. say they liked what I did. Yeah. Was this Abstractions of the Industrial North? That's one of his library records, yeah. Yeah. Which is just absolutely out there. Like, you would not be surprised to have it on Warp Records. Yeah, it's an amazing record, yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing record, yeah. But that's, again, that's a bit of a library record. It was a useless library record. Nobody wanted it. It It's made no money at all for a library because it's just so unusable at the time. (laughs) And now it's a a major influence on people like Broadcast and people like Mm. that. So do what you love. Is this a greatest hit, so to speak? I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. It started. I just wanted to put something out to say hello. I've, done, I've been here twenty five years, <laughs> yeah. um, and it started as a sort of single record. Then I thought, oh no, I want to put that on. And I think to put that on, and then you sort of realise also if you do a compilation that if you do it of just stuff you've already put out, everyone goes, oh, I've got that. Whereas if you put loads of stuff you haven't issued before mm. on it, everyone goes, oh, it's got that I've not had before. Mm. So it was an opportunity to do to show stuff I've done yeah. and and issue stuff I've not issued before which is and in some cases has never been issued before which makes it a bit more commercial mm-hmm. I suppose in a tiny weeny way <laughs> What are your favourites on there because for listeners who don't know or haven't seen it yet um, we've got The Millionaire from Bedazzled yeah. the soundtrack there's a bit of Delia Derbyshire yeah. Mike and Bernie Winters yeah. there are spoken word speech exercises from Italia Conti children Yeah I like uh, things like um, the opening cue for Kez the film Kez Oh yeah 
because it's it's kind of British jazz, amazing British jazz musicians doing a sort of pastoral sound with mm-hmm. Harold McNair on Penny Whistle. Um, I like the soundtrack to Bartleby, which I think is just a, one of the weirdest films I've ever seen, but the music is quite incredible by Roger Webb, who's a library composer, mm-hmm. but very melodic. Um, I like the little TV themes, you know, The Flashing Blades, yeah. Tomorrow People. The Tomorrow People is one of the greatest pieces of music ever made. It's still utterly terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's on this album, and yeah. it's still, you know, I listen to that, and, and it's it, to me that's the equal to the Doctor Who theme in yeah, terms of like... It's, this musical <laughs> freeze yeah. your shit. It's yes. absolutely so. I kind of like it. All. I kind of like it all. You know, mm. I I don't really have a favourite. I just it's it's how I work. It just sort of came out in an evening and I just plonked it all together and mm. I went. That's it. I had a major moment with this uh, record on holiday because it just so happened that the millionaire from Bedazzled, which yep. is oh, yes. the suavest <laughs> piece of music yeah. in history, happened to be playing on my phone just as the plane came down to land in Athens Airport. Oh, and I get you. Very very international. <laughs> I felt like. Absolutely, get get your head down, sweetie. Mm, yes, uh, I felt very, very international, and yeah, if you get brilliant. this record, you'll feel very, mm. very international mm. as well. So, Johnny, you work and collaborate with people like Jarvis Cocker, Bob yep. Stanley, Martin Green. Yep. Is there anyone on your list who you've not worked with? Oh no, I'm trying to think. I, you see, I don't really think like that. I'm t- there's there's lots of people I'm trying to find, but but none of them are very famous. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I accidentally come across these. Martin I've known since, you know, he was one of the people who'd be on the floor of the record shops in the mm, early 90s mm. digging about, and that's where I met Martin. I'm trying to think, there's a lot of the people I've worked with in the past, people like Oliver Postgate have been my, genuinely been my heroes, mm-hmm. and people like Jarvis. Oliver you know, Postgate they're, they're, of the Clangers fame, yeah, for listeners yeah. who might not know this, the, you know, the great genius. Well, there's some Nog in the Nog on, there's some unreleased Nog in the Nog on the compilation, you see. Only on this podcast will you hear the phrase unreleased nog in the nog. <laughs> yeah. what, I, what I love about this is there's an almost complete absence of rock and roll posturing. Like nobody here wants to be a rock star or even considers rock and roll to be particularly The star valid. system is absent. Yes, they yeah. are. They are further out than any of these guys. <laughs> mm. these, any of these mojo guys, they're mm. out beyond. Mm, mm. Has the internet made a difference? Because music has become accessible, people posting stuff. This isn't so obscure as it was no, in the mid nineties. Um, well, no, but you say that, but it is still it is still pretty obscure. These, you know, we're dealing with artists who who have tiny weeny followings or aren't even aren't even known. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the good thing about the internet is is you now have streaming. So so for example, Janet Beat, who's the, this sort of eighty three year old electronic musician who whose music I've just issued, um, she now has like 4,000 listeners on Spotify, whereas right. four weeks ago she, had, she wasn't even in existence. And all of a sudden she has now, people can find her and mm. find her music without having to go to a yeah. shop and it's easily accessible and that's a great thing. One last question. Is your record collection in alphabetical order or do you categorise in a different way? Okay. So <laughs> the library music's done by label. Yeah, okay. The soundtracks are done by country, then label, then alphabetical. Okay. Everything else, I just know where it is. There you go. Wonderful. Do What You Love is out now. Listen, listeners. Finally, the virtual shelves groan with exhaustive reissues and remasters of rock bands. Every note and squeak is preserved for history. Well, that's seldom the case with your actual four-on-the-floor dance music, which never gets that full page in Uncut magazine. Perhaps that will change with the new Master Mixer series curated by Arthur Baker of Walking on Sunshine and I Did Confusion by New Order (laughs) fame. 
Master Mixers aims to collect the best 12-inch mixes by different star remixers and treat them as lovingly as you might Abbey Road. And Volume 1 is right up my street. Shep Pettibone Master Mixers is a four-CD set featuring 46 tracks mixed by the percussion king of the 80s dance floor. It features walloping redos, including Whitney Houston, George Michael, Pet Shop Boys, Pointer Sisters, Rum DMC, Kim Wilde, Lionel Richie, (laughs) Depeche Mode, and New Order, which might be the track you're best known for, Bizarre Love Triangle. Pesky licensing means we can't put it on the main podcast, but yes, it's on our ongoing Culture Bunker playlist. See link in the show notes. And it might be on the Patreon version too. Sean Shep Pettibone is the one person of whom we can never say needs more cowbell. <laughs> it is a cowbell paradise, isn't it? Four are indeed on the floor on this uh, one. They yes. are all over yes. the floor. Yes. <laughs> Whatever mood you're in, put this on and you've instantly been transported to being on the dance floor. There is no way that you can't. But I was slightly surprised by the emissions, but I presume it's again the man and the licensing. There's yeah. no Madonna. There's no Janet Jackson. Because mm. he, you know, and that, there are a few where you just really want... Something like that to well, come through. Well, he, uh, he fell out with Warner Records over Vogue mine? because yes, he had to take legal action against Warner Records. I don't right. think he, I think he was fighting with Madge, but he's fighting with Warner. But yeah. yeah, Vogue yeah. and Into the Groove are Shep Pettibone jams, as, as it were. Yeah. But for the listeners, give a description of because he has a very particular style, doesn't he, Shep? He has, but I was surprised that actually no song sounds the same on this because I was listening out to see what Mm. his kind of crutches are in that sense and there are differences in it yes there's cowbells a lot of percussion the bass and kick drum are really really high he'll fiddle but it's not like an Andrew Weatherall fiddle there's yeah. going to be some sort of order to it and they still sound like pop songs so he yes. hasn't completely dismantled well as Arthur Baker says in the sleeve notes he had a radio sensibility so yeah. he's making 12 inch yeah. bangers that can be played on the radio but you do have to pick through this because I didn't mm. really want to listen to Level 42 this morning oh I don't know you know the thing is, like, he can <laughs> take things sure. you might be ambivalent about and shep them up and make them amazing. There's a great Duran Duran one on here as well. There is a great Duran yeah, Duran yeah. one. The late, on the later list... And the Terence Trent Derby. Anyway. There's a, there's a fair bit of kind of... Um, when you get deep into disc four, it's slightly hard work, I think. There's a, quite a bit of super smooth going mm. on, which I find a bit hard yeah. work. Yeah. Johnny, what did you think? Because this, this is not really trunky, but what did you think? It reminded me of being at the Boiler House. Oh, yeah. Back in... The 80s. That's not a bad thing. No, I know. But that's what it sounded like. Just before they'd put on a Rare Groove trek or record, they'd put on something like that. Yeah. You know, it's a very distinctive 80s. For, for a lot of it, it's very, it reminded me just of being in a big party in the 80s, a big clubby yeah. kind of situation in the 80s, which, you know, I didn't mind at the time. I quite liked it. Mm. I, it's, this is not something I choose to listen to now because I found it quite exhausting because mm. it's, mm. it's, I just, I've, I've got to take minutes long this. I haven't got the time. It's, it's very distinctive though. I mean, the signature is is... All over it, isn't it? And yeah. it, it, it's yeah. it's a very dynamic. Um, I'm not sure if you drop some of it now, people would go. Oh, I love this. So I'm going to dance to it. I think it's it's more of a listening thing. I now. can prove that you can, and oh. they do because <laughs> I have done this, and they can, they do. At it's, your roving disco. At my roving my ro- roving rave. Where's that then? Uh, oh, here, there, and everywhere. Okay. Okay. Occasionally, <laughs> you know, across a world tour of North London. Sean, uh, do remixers get the respect they deserve? Because uh, for me, like people like Shirt Pettibone, and they're up with Lee Perry or Kraftwerk in terms of like sound. I would shapers. say they. I would say they do, and I would say that, and this is part of a series that they are getting that, and especially. I mean, the sad thing is, as they die as well, everyone puts out the records that, um, you know, the remixes that they do. I've I went back to the Saint Etienne Casino Classics, mm. which is just incredible as a as a remix album. It's yeah. all there. It's stuff. like a history of pop, isn't it? From a, from the early nineties to now. It's abstract art, as opposed to pop music's mm. um, 
figurative art. It is, it's, it's a take on it, yes, and it's an art form and it's a skill. And I, it's so culturally important and it's so of its time that I think this can only kind of get bigger. So uh, Dance Masters, Shep Pettibone Master Mixes, is out now in a four-CD set yeah. with a book and loads of sleeve notes and quotes from Andy Bell from Erasure and Neil Tennant and Arthur Baker and all these people. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I feel like it was designed and made for me. So I'll be cowbelling it up like crazy at the weekend. Yeah. That means we're at the end of the podcast. And it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing at Popper's O'Clock? Well, I'm, t- I'm talking relentlessly about my groovy fair at <laughs> the Mildmay Club on Saturday the 2nd of October, 11 for to 11. For listeners who happen to their own misfortunes to not live in Stoke Newington, yeah. can you tell them <laughs> where the Mildmay Club is, what it is, and, and what this is all about? The Mildmay Club was opened in 1888 as the Mildmay Radical Club and is now a working men's club, and it's a listed building for its 60s magical interior, which has not been touched, obviously, since the 1960s. It's constantly on things like... Call the Midwife and TV ads and dramas and this sort of thing. Oasis made a video there, didn't they? Everybody, do you yeah. name it? The, mm. the most famous one is is John Newman. Yeah, that Northern Soul one. That's oh, all right. shot in the um, all shot in the Marbay. It's got it's got a huge snooker hall with nine snooker full size tables in it. It's got three bars, I've, and I'm taking over the whole place tomorrow. It's got huge. Two halls full of dealers selling records, t-shirts, fun things. It's going to be great. And tomorrow is Saturday, the second of October. For listeners listening on the morning of Saturday, the 2nd of October, <laughs> yeah. Patreon people listening on the Friday, so get your train tickets. Free to get in. Free to get in. Ooh. And interesting things are happening in the evening as well, aren't superstar they? Superstar DJ. Who's superstar DJ? Jarvis. Ah, right. So there you go. Free to get in. Free to get in. Free Jarvis <laughs> Cocker DJ set, and you can buy loads of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's going to be brilliant. Yeah. Sounds good. Sean, what's yours? Um, old news by now, probably, but yes, I am excited about the release of Toy. The David Bowie Lost Album, which will be released in on the 7th of January. His birthday, it would have been his 75th birthday. They've released one track from it. It was the one he made before Heathen and Virgin decided to shelve it. Um, and the track's really good. And I, I really like that period. And I like Heathen. I like One Outside and all that sort of jazz and still listen to that quite a lot. Um, so I, for one will be excited for three months before it comes out in a really pathetic adolescent way that I am. But, yeah, that's that's kind of made my week. It's been an eventful week. That's made it. Fair news. What's your closing time chatter, Andrew? Well, just the astonishing sight of Daniel Ek, the Spotify grillionaire. Oh, yeah. Um, at the Tottenham Arsenal uh, derby <laughs> last Sunday, being brought there by Thierry Henry. So there, they you know they cut a shot of Thierry Henry, yeah. Arsenal legend, and there's who's that fellow next? It's Daniel Ek from Spotify. Yeah. There's been rumours that Daniel Ek from Spotify is going to buy Arsenal. I was going to say buy football. They, yeah, yeah, buy football. And of course, I had you know my stupid take on this was this means Arsenal will take away point zero 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 three points from the win. Hem hem. Yeah. But um, it's the, the the thought that this is now the new uh, the new football club buying class of people mm. from the 1970s when it's like pop stars would buy football clubs and yes. it was in Viz pop yeah. star Rick Spangler has bought Fulchester <laughs> yes, right. and he's put and he's signed yes. Shaking Stevens and, and, <laughs> yes, and actually in, in Roy the Rovers I think Spandau yeah. Ballet signed for Melchester Rovers <laughs> and um, yeah. Tony Hadley and the Kemp new royalty were, were it's, playing yeah it's so I don't know whether this means if Daniel Ek buys Arsenal, will he take mm. a kind of algorithm-based approach to selecting the team? Yes, you liked Arsenal. You may like Tottenham Hotspur. You know what? I do get those <laughs> messages on Facebook. You like Liverpool. Yeah. Have you ever thought of following Chelsea? What? <laughs> what are you talking about? So anyway, so that's my close to time, Chelsea. And that is the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to Johnny Trunk for coming in. My pleasure.
Keep digging them crates. Thanks also to Mr John... Oh, it's Dr John Cooper-Clark. Dr John Cooper-Clark. Yeah, for being there. From me, Andrew, producers Robin Lieburn and Yelena Sofranovic, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Big Mouth subscribers, don't forget to change your subscription over to the Culture Bunker channel. We're going to end with a poem. Of course we are. From our guest, JCC. His new collection, The Luckiest Guy Alive, is out now. JCC for PM. We're chalked up. Here it is. <laughs> a homely girl named Lisa couldn't get a geezer. Her mother told her, darling, don't you cry. You could knock them down like skittles with some farinaceous victuals. You'll always get a guy with a pie. When rules of engagement don't apply and your best moves fail to catch his eye, start rolling out the dough and he'll never let you go. You'll always get a guy with a pie. The salad's in the bin. I've never seen a gym, but I'll be there to watch those fuckers die. I feel fine, except I'm hungry all the time, and you'll always get a guy with a pie. Please God, I will be going by and by to that massive cafeteria in the sky. There'll be tea and angel cake, but give me a break. You'll always get a guy on high with a pie. You'll always get a guy with a pie, even when and they're stale, they taste okay with ale at the point where hunger pains intensify. Cold weather grub that may be eaten in a public house, you'll always get a pie-eyed guy with a pie. You'll always get a guy with a pie. What else you gonna do with that leftover stew and those cuts of meat you can't identify? Ingredients of this sort just taste better under short crust. You'll always get a guy with a I spy with my little eye something beginning with oh I you'll always get a guy with a pie that one's called pies <laughs> that was amazing that was wonderful thank you so much that whole thing is fantastic and has given me new hope for humanity John oh, I love talking hell, to you that's saying something. thanks very much then Sean <laughs> thank you John have a wonderful day and hopefully I'll see you live at some point soon see you again kid <laughs> 